Hi, I'm Peter Adamson, and you're listening to the History of Philosophy podcast, brought to you with the support of the Philosophy Department at King's College London and the LMU in Munich, online at www.historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode will be an interview about John Buridan with Jack Zupko, who is Professor of Philosophy at the University of Alberta. Hi, Jack. Yeah, hi, Peter. Um, thanks. This is, this is very nice. Yeah, it's great to have you on the series, uh, because we're going to be talking about John Buridan, and you're someone who's published a lot about him, including a book mm-hmm. about Buridan, yeah. which is subtitled Portrait of a 14th Century Arts Master. And I take the subtitle to be uh, an indication of the importance of the fact that he remained in the Faculty of Arts which is unusual. I mean, he doesn't join one of the orders. He doesn't become a Franciscan or a Dominican. Right. And also he doesn't join the theology faculty. So in this respect, he's unlike a lot of the other major medieval philosophers we've looked at, like Aquinas, Scotus, Occam, and so yeah. on. Um, so what do you think that these biographical facts tell us about his philosophical project? Yeah. Well, I, I think actually that they tell us quite a bit about Buridan, but it's all indirect because he never himself tells us why he remains a career arts master, uh, why he doesn't join a religious order like the Dominicans and Franciscans. Um, but there would have been reasons for doing so. The normal career path uh, for an academic in the 14th century uh, in Paris was to study for your arts degree, become a master, and lecture in arts, and then move on to an advanced faculty, very often theology, um, and support yourself as a theology student by lecturing on arts. Uh, there, we have evidence of this as well. Not uniquely, but unlike almost everyone else we know from the period, Buridan remains for his entire career for almost 30 years in the Faculty of Arts at the University of Paris and remains an arts master without ever advancing to the Faculty of Theology or, as far as we know, ever attempting to earn a theology degree. And that's despite the fact that he was pretty well known in his own lifetime as a very smart guy. Indeed. Um, uh, He seems to have made a career for himself as a secular master. And in, in my view, I think you can find some evidence of this in his writings. He seems uh, uh, very conscious of this fact and very conscious as well uh, of his role in commenting on Aristotle and of the idea, and you see this in his uh, works from the 1340s and 1350s, of the idea that perhaps philosophy is uh, a secular enterprise. Um, Now, that in itself wasn't terribly surprising, I don't think, because um, Thomas Aquinas, for example, uh, never refers to a Christian as a philosopher. For him, philosophy is a pagan activity, right? So Augustine's not a philosopher, Augustine's a theologian. Exactly, right. So that's that's the sort of, and, and you can see how that was kind of, translated over into career paths and so on. But Buridan takes this a little bit differently. He, for him, a, a philosopher is indeed, uh, it's a secular, not a pagan activity, but it's different from theology. And the reason I say this is because he never, in his writings, to my knowledge, refers to theology as a scientia, or a science in the Aristotelian sense, meaning a body of knowledge. 
And that's quite significant. Now, it wouldn't have been his place as an arts master to pronounce on theology. He would have gotten into trouble for that, for sure. But it's telling that whenever he uses the term scientia, right, which is knowledge which philosophers should be concerned with, he doesn't ever say that this form of knowing exists in the faculty of theology. He more typically says, the theologians will decide for themselves and kind of pushes it off. But I think that we can, in many places, we can read that as saying he's skeptical about whether you can have genuine uh, uh, scientia in theology. I guess then your idea is that he really wanted to have certain knowledge, and that's what his goal was in his writings, and he thought that was something he could only achieve in the secular philosophical yeah. arts faculty. Well, I, I think, and it's also tied together with this notion, and this is what I, I, I tried to push in my book, of placing philosophy on a new and secular foundation, by which we mean not a theological foundation. So this is something that could be respectfully pursued by someone who's a Christian, and it would be involved with questions, a menu of questions, if you will, that were determined by Aristotle and the commentary tradition on Aristotle's writings that would begin in logic, right, the art of art and science of sciences, as Peter of Spain said, and move out from there to metaphysics, natural philosophy, ethics, and, and so on. And I, I see this as a, as a very significant change from the way philosophy was done, uh, not just uh, from the way philosophy was done in the 13th century, but also among his peers. And in fact, it seems like a premonition of what's to come in centuries later, so yes. early modern philosophy and so on. That's the harder part of the argument. And, and I certainly you know, don't want to suggest that that really modernity in philosophy, forget about Descartes, it begins with Buridan. Yeah, he right? invented <laughs> philosophy as we understand yeah, it, basically. Yeah, <laughs> That's much too strong a claim. Oh, come on, so, it's just a podcast. <laughs> right. You can say right. it here. Yeah, right. Well, it's not in print. <laughs> zany and crazy claims. Um, well, uh, uh, it's possible uh, that we could, we could uh, advance this, but we have a lot of filling in to do. So we know that Buridan as well was terrifically interested influential in the universities, especially in Eastern Europe where, and Northern Italy. His students went out and then took copies of Buridan's writings with them and used those writings as the basis for their own commentaries on Aristotle. So we have this kind of chain of transmission, and we don't know a lot about it going into the 15th century. But the more we learn about it, and we continue to see Buridan's hand and Buridan's influence in the way books like De Anima were read. Um, we'll one day be able to uh, have a kind of seamless story between uh, late scholasticism and uh, the early modern period, Descartes and thinkers like that. And there's no doubt that Burden will be a major part of that story. I think so. I think so, just because of the way he does things. Yeah. Yeah. Now, obviously, the arts faculty was not invented to facilitate this sort of project. Yeah. It's intended to train younger students. And something else that you, in fact, emphasize a lot in your book is that Buridan was a teacher yeah. and that his writings were produced in a pedagogical context. Yeah. What does that mean for us as readers of Buridan? How does it affect the way that we should 
follow through a commentary on Aristotle or other works that he wrote. Yeah, yeah. It it means that uh, we should be careful, or at least I've always found when I read Buridan, careful about surface appearances, because sometimes things can appear fairly uh, straightforward and simplistic, because he is teaching. He is trying to tell arts undergraduates what they need to know about Aristotle. But if you look further and read more deeply, you see that he replies to questions in ways that very much engage the arguments and that, that signal important shifts in position, including shifts away from Aristotle. But it, it's all done in a, in a kind of subtle fashion. And so when you read Buridan, you shouldn't expect the writer of independent treatises saying, he, here, is, here are the principles of philosophy and here is how it goes. Working in a commentary tradition, he was guided initially by authoritative texts. And those were not just the texts of Aristotle, but uh, in logic, texts like Peter of Spain. So there was a textbook tradition of logic. Buridan does amazing things in logic. He revolutionizes logic, but he does it within this commentary context on Peter of Spain. And you have to read far enough to see what he's doing. So this is just the latest example of something that we've seen really throughout almost the whole history of philosophy now, which is that often the most innovative thinkers are presenting their ideas within the context of writing commentaries. We saw it in late antiquity. Yes. We saw it actually in the later Islamic period, even later than Buridan. Yeah. And we've also been seeing it throughout Latin medieval philosophy. Yeah. Unfortunately, I, I think the commentary uh, as a genre is not well thought of in, in our world. People imagine, well, a commentary, that's not original. And how could we find good philosophy in a commentary? It's simply someone riffing on themes that have been discussed by others. But that's very far from the truth. Um, really, a lot of things were going on in commentaries and a lot of original work as well. But on the other hand, it seems like the teaching context would impose certain limits on Buridan's project. So something you've already mentioned is that he doesn't see it as part of his task or even maybe uh, he doesn't see it as something he's allowed to do to venture into more theological territory. Yeah. And I guess that one might also say he's not going to stray too far from the topics that, let's say, Aristotle has set in the source right. text, because otherwise he's not writing a commentary anymore. Yeah, yeah. So, so the genre, and, and not specifically the commentary, but the subject matter, and so the curriculum of the University of Paris for undergraduates was what determined what Buridan was, was lecturing on. But um, he doesn't stray too far away. But again, under or beneath that rubric, I'll, I'll give you an example that, that might bring this home, not so much with Aristotle, but with Peter of Spain. His logical masterwork, uh, the Samulae de Dialectica, which became the logic textbook in most of Europe for several hundred years afterwards, is written as a commentary on Peter of Spain. So you go into that and you find Buridan treating sometimes some very old material, doing logic in a way that uh, wouldn't, was no longer done in the 14th century. But he reinvents things. And there's one place, uh, the fourth treatise on supposition, where he thought Peter of Spain's remarks were just so uh, 
badly done that he took them out and replaced them with his own. <laughs> <laughs> it's not exactly a commentary. <laughs> so anymore, it's not, it? any, uh, not a commentary, right? <laughs> but but uh, he rewrites the source text so that it should say what it should say mm-hmm. and uh, and works from there. So there's there's actually, I think, quite a bit of room for inventiveness within that within the genre and indeed within the pedagogical context of the university and of course even in earlier generations we see people like scotus really bending the notion of what could be in a commentary absolutely say a commentary on the sentences of peter lombard it's not like they're just (laughs) quoting each sentence of lombard and then saying what lombard exactly change it into a question format where they handle one topic after another yeah. and so on. And, and indeed, there's a, a, a distinction within the genre between the expositio, which is a literal commentary, typically a line-by-line exposition of the authoritative text, and the quaestio, which is, uh, as it suggests, a question based on the text, and the question usually comes from a lemma from the text. And these Quaestionais uh, develop lives of their own, so that you'd see arts masters treating the same questions and responding to each other and each other's arguments in the context of these questions. And that gets them quite far away from the original source. Indeed, right? yeah. Well, now moving on to the content that gets presented in these works, I guess the thing that Burden is most known for is being a nominalist. Mm-hmm. And something else that you argue for in your book, which kind of surprised me because I think of the 14th century as a time where realism and nominalism are jousting for supremacy, you say, well, not really, because in a way, Buridan could take nominalism as the default position. He basically felt that that position had won the day, as it were. And uh, thus, you suggest that we shouldn't see him so much through the lens of nominalism as such, as see him as what you call a parsimonious Yeah, And so I'm wondering whether you could say something more about what you take that to mean. Sure. Um, I think that for Buridan, and indeed for other uh, 14th century uh, thinkers, nominalism is not uh, uh, a bit of doctrine, right? Uh, It shouldn't be thought of as a position on whether there are real universals or not. That was a part of it, and nominalists did hold this view. But to my mind, and, and, and certainly, you know, Buridan is a very good example of this, um, nominalism is a method. It's a way of doing philosophy, and it's guided by a new way of doing logic that uh, begins to be practiced by people like William of Ockham and is perfected by Buridan. And it involves uh, a, a, an important change in semantic theory. In particular, the most important of those changes is the shift in theory of predication. So uh, before the new logic, the standard theory of predication was called the inherence theory. Roughly, a sentence is true just in case the uh, predicate of the sentence inheres in its subject. Now, of course, you can see that if you uh, look into this further, you have to do quite a bit of metaphysics, right, in order to understand the phenomenon of predication. The new logic, the terminist logic that Buridan and Occam practice, rejects this. It says uh, roughly that um, a sentence is true just in case the uh, subject term stands for the same thing as the predicate term. 
No, there's they, no, they both have the same supposit. In their exactly. Language. Does the yeah. same object out in the world satisfies both the subject and predicate term? Precisely. Okay. So we bracket or shove aside any notion of inherence or uh, predication becomes more a question of reference, right? Of, of individuals in the world. And that completely turns around semantic theory and allows us allowed semantic theory to be disconnected from very thorny metaphysical issues that it had really bogged down with from the time of Abelard on. Just to make sure that I get this, the difference then would be if you take a sentence like Peter is bald, which mm -hmm. sadly I am. You've got, so the first uh, initial position, the inherence position, yeah. is that baldness somehow inheres in Correct. me or exists in me. And of course, then that puts the onus on the proponent of this theory to say what my baldness is. Exactly. Because it's a, evidently a real thing out in the world. What's the quality baldness? That's a kind of universal. It's a common nature. Is it a property that you share with others and so on? And it fails to inhere in you because you have a nice thick head of hair. So still. Yeah, still. Okay. <laughs> but it does exist in Tele Savalas. Yes. The, the star of Kojak. In, indeed. You remember. Yeah. Right. It's not a very contemporary reference. And now in the new logic view, um, you say, well, the reason the sentence is true is that I satisfy the name Peter, because Peter yes. refers to me, and I satisfy the predicate baldness because I'm bald. Bald man, right? Okay. Or, or bald individual. And Peter are the same person, right? right? The okay. same individual. So the sentence is true. Okay, right. Yeah. Now, what does Buridan bring that earlier nominalists hadn't in defending this way of thinking about predication? Or does he take it so much for granted that he feels like he doesn't need to defend it? Uh, I think it's the latter. Um, I don't know of any place where he offers a kind of defense of this as the way. It's his very methodology. And going back to the book, I think it's what characterizes his, his kind of philosophical outlook. So it's not the case that there weren't people around in the 14th century who uh, 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 you know, believed in real universals. Walter Burley you know, is a kind of realist who, who believes in universals. But it's the way in which you think about um, subjects and predicates and common natures and so on, and the way in which they're used in arguments and the way in which the truth conditions of those arguments are explicated that makes all the difference. Um, the other thing I would say there, too, is that, is that for Buridan and most of his contemporaries, if you, if you talked about realism, for them, initially at least, it was Plato's realism which they only understood in cartoon form uh, from Aristotle's metaphysics, you know, who, you know, has all kinds of arguments against it. And in Buridan and other 14th century authors, not having Plato's works, right, uh, Platonic realism was hilarious, right? <laughs> Surely you're not a Platonic realist was, was typically the, the way they approached it. Poor Plato. Yeah, yeah, it, it's, it, it's sad. I think, you know, they certainly had respect for him, but it, the respect was, was and, the, and they knew, of course, that they only had the first half of the Timaeus, yeah. right, in, in, in Latin. But on the question of universals, uh, virtually every one thought that Plato's view was a non-starter. Right, because they're basically just using Aristotle's critique of Plato That's as their right. source for knowledge about Plato. That's right. right. One advantage, I think, of seeing him as a parsimonious thinker instead of concentrating on this debate about nominalism and realism concerning universals is that we can apply this 
conception of his methodology in other areas of his philosophy. Yeah. And one that we should probably mention because you're a part of the team that's producing the translation and edition of the De Anima commentary. Yeah. So the commentary by Byrne on Aristotle's On the Soul is psychology. So what he has to say about the soul. How does his parsimonious approach to philosophy manifest itself in that context? Yeah. Um, well, there's there's a couple of different ways. I mean, uh, w- one way that uh, applies a, a across the board is through judicious use of the razor, right? So what we know as Occam's razor, you know, it certainly found in Occam, was not known in the Middle Ages as Occam's razor. But the notion that when you explain a phenomenon, you know, especially a natural phenomenon, you should use as few entities as you as you can to construct a satisfactory explanation. That runs throughout Buridan's metaphysics and natural philosophy. I would say that the highest level it comes out in Buridan's efforts to, I want to use here the term naturalism, but I don't mean it in uh, a contemporary sense, in quite the sense that we, we have now. But I mean it in the sense that Buridan resolutely focuses on nature and the way in which the natural world unfolds and wants to come up with the most parsimonious understanding of that. And if a phenomenon is complex, he's certainly willing to come up with a complex explanation. And we can see this in his writings when he's talking about the propagation of light and vision, right? He knew this was a complex phenomenon because he had sources from um, Islamic philosophy and and, uh, perspectivism and so on that he was dealing with. But, um, uh, and, and along with the naturalism, uh, there's a sort of shying away, uh, if you will, from purely metaphysical explanations. Mm-hmm. But it seems like this area of the soul in particular is one where, first of all, from our point of view, they're all positing uh, a sort yeah. of superfluous entity, namely the immaterial soul, or at least a very controversial entity. I mean, maybe some of the listeners believe in yeah. material souls as well, but a lot of people would say, well, you don't need that. And I guess I wonder why wouldn't Buridan be led by his own methodology to say, well, actually, if I can have the body performing certain faculties, maybe the explanatory principle of soul in general is just OTOs. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, indeed, if, 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 if one were to follow the naturalism kind of all the way down, you would arrive at such a position. And in fact, uh, uh, what Buridan does is, here is, is quite interesting. Where the, the human intellective soul is concerned, and this is the, the controversial item, right? It's the immaterial soul. It's supposed to be in, in here in the body somehow uh, and be extended but not by the extension of the body, right? There's this problem about how something immaterial can be in a place and inhere in something physical. When he comes to discuss this question, he says basically that the position of the Catholic faith, right, of, of, of Christianity, that the human soul is immaterial and yet inherent in the body is not demonstrable by natural reason. And in the same question, he sketches also the position of Averroes, who has a monopsychist position, a kind of single intellective soul that's shared by all cognizers. And this is the 
naturalistic position, that of Alexander of Aphrodisias, who has a material intellect. And what's very interesting is Buridan says up front that a philosopher without having the benefit of the faith should agree with the position of Alexander. In other words, should agree with the material intellect takes precisely the position you're suggesting. It's just that we know otherwise and we believe on faith that the human soul is immaterial. And I take it you you think he's being sincere there. Yes. He's not sort of subtly indicating to his students, oh, by the way, the Catholic faith is wrong. Yeah. He's actually saying, well, we, we know this doctrine to be true, even though we can't demonstrate it. Well, we believe it to be true. You see, it's not going to be scientia, because we can argue for it. So, in other words, he's happy to e- enumerate the arguments in favor of the position, as he does in the case of Averroes and Alexander and the objections. But he says, if you focus on the natural evidence, the preponderance of the arguments are in favor of Alexander. But that's not demonstrative either, or at least it's not, uh, it doesn't show that the other views are false. Reminds me a little bit of the late 13th century discussions on the eternity of the world, actually. Yeah. Where you have people, even someone like Aquinas, will say, well, actually, there's no demonstration for the eternity of the world. There's no demonstration against it. The reason that we believe it not to be eternal is that the Bible says it's not eternal, effectively. Yeah, it's certainly that, but it's also the, the, the indicating to students that, look, in holding this position, we're not, we're not sort of violating um, good epistemic principles. So you can't come along and, and say, I can demonstrate the materiality of the soul, because you can't do that, mm-hmm. right? And he's, he's quick to point that out. There, there has been, um, uh, about a decade ago, uh, uh, an interpretation that suggested that Buridan was between the lines, you know, a, a kind of crypto-materialist. But um, I've, I've published on this, uh, arguing that this doesn't hold up because there's just no evidence of it elsewhere in his writings. Right. I suspect that his approach to this particular question was just one of setting a boundary, Mm-hmm. Right, Because natural philosophy is concerned with things that are evident to sense, memory, and experience, right, following an Aristotelian line, the claim that there's something, that the soul is something that's not evident in this way, places it beyond the reach of the natural philosopher. One other thing that we should probably mention before we finish is uh, Buridan's thought in physics. Yes. Because I guess the thing he's maybe most known for, other than his nominalism, is his theory of impetus. And yes. more generally, uh, his what he does with Aristotelian science. Is that another area where you see this parsimonious methodology having an influence on the conclusions he reaches? Yeah, uh, I suppose so. Um, uh, but... I, I guess I wouldn't describe it as, as parsimony, as, but it, as yet another example of Buridan trying to develop explanations that actually fit the phenomena. So historically, um, at the time Buridan was writing his commentary on the physics, everyone knew that the Aristotelian theory of antiperistasis was was wrong, <laughs> or there's some. This is the view that uh, uh, the air kind of comes in from behind and pushes the projectile through the through space. Right, right. So if Aristotle's right, then I could, say, put a javelin on a table top and go behind it with a bellows and pump it quickly and the javelin would begin to move, right? (laughs) Because I'm pushing it along. Right. 
but but Buridan knows this is wrong, and you know he gives us a, 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 an example. He says he's noticed that on the Seine River there are uh, barges carrying grain. And these are moving up and down the Seine River. Now, you'd expect that if antiperistasis were true, that is, if the air in front of the barge, where the barge is moving, is being pushed out of the way and going to the back of the barge to fill up the vacuum that's created by the motion of the barge, the sailors would have grain blowing all over them, right? <laughs> because it would create a wind, right, that would blow the grain on them. And he says, we don't see this happening. Therefore, there's, some, there's something wrong here. Because the grain's yeah. loosely piled just to... Yeah, ex exactly. So you can imagine there's chaff and so on, and, <laughs> and, and, and the wind from the motion, from the push at the back, would go over the top of the boat and blow the grain on the sailors, and that just doesn't It's a happen. brilliant observation, actually. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, so he's very attuned to the natural world and, and, and to, to showing his students just why this theory doesn't make any sense. And he picks up from, uh, well, several intermediaries. The theory comes from Philoponus. The notion that instead we should think of motion as a quality that's in an object that's somehow impressed in it. Mm -hmm. In the case of violent motion, it's impressed by the javelin, the thrower, right? And there were elaborate theories of impetus which talked about how long-lasting it was, right? So a javelin will not keep moving, right? But the impetus will gradually decline uh, uh, as gravity pulls it down. And he says also, and this is interesting because you'd think that only a theologian would say something like this, that this is actually a better explanation of the motion of superlunary bodies, right? The stars and the planets. Because God could have put into them, at the moment of their creation, an eternal impetus. And that would cause them to, to acquire the quality to keep moving in the circular fashion that they move, or however it is. Um, and that's a better explanation of their motion than anything else that was around. It's interesting. The reason I asked about the parsimony issue in this context is that I could imagine an opponent of the impetus theory precisely on parsimonious grounds, saying, well, I don't want this hypothesized occult force yeah. that's been impressed into the projectile. I want something that I know is already there, and Aristotle's theory is better for that yeah. purpose, because I know there's air surrounding the projectile, so if the air could somehow be pushing it along, that yeah. would be more parsimonious. In that sense, you could even argue that this is a place where he's willing to be less parsimonious because he wants to account for the phenomenon. I think that's right. I, I think that Bearden senses that Aristotle stumbles on the phenomena here mm -hmm. and that we have to change this, which is important to note, you know, just taking it back to commentaries and authority, he certainly will reject Aristotle's view where he thinks it's wrong. I mean, another place is um, in the theory of modal syllogistic. Uh, all logicians knew that Aristotle's theory had serious gaps in it and was problematic. The, the, the real issue was how to fill it in and how to revamp it. And Buridan and a number of other uh, logicians uh, you know, take that task on. Right. Okay, well, we're not quite done looking at Burden because next time we're going to be looking at skepticism in the 14th century, seeing Burden's response to skepticism and concentrating especially on a thinker who advanced some skeptical arguments named Nicholas of Otsakor. 
But for now, I'll thank Jep Zako very much for coming on the podcast. Well, gosh, Peter, it's it's been it's been really delightful, and thanks for this opportunity to to talk about Buridan with yeah. you. And please join me next time for Nicholas of Otakor and Skepticism in the Medieval Period here on the History of Philosophy without any gaps.